Well, good morning. Happy Father's Day. If you're a father, happy father-to-be. If, if the Lord blesses you to be able to have children in the future, I know it's a, it's a big day for us fathers. We'll talk about that a little bit later. Genesis 28 is where we are. If you want me to find your place, I got one thing I wanted to talk about this morning. I wanted to point your attention to the info guide um, for our, our regular guests and for our members. I just want you to see... Um, our, finan- our financial giving, uh, church time during the summer sometimes a little stressful for us pastors because people go on vacation and, and, uh, and the work of ministry goes on. We live on a budget just like you do and, and the budgets, uh, and so we have to keep that up. We're running a little bit behind. Our calendar year uh, starts over in October, so we'd like to end that on a positive note. So just encourage you to be faithful. You can give online. Uh, if you do, just make sure that you pull the pull-down box and, and make sure you you always click KM General Fund. If not, you'll, you'll give to the budget of another camp, one of our other campuses. <laughs> so that's important. And, uh, so thank you for letting me just mention that. Genesis 28. If you're, if you're our guest, let me welcome you. And, and if you ask the question, why are we in Genesis 28 uh, this week? It's because we were in Genesis 27 last week. And we're an expositional church, which means we just pick a section of God's Word, and we study it all the way through. And so what we've been doing is looking specifically in Genesis, and we're looking for the gospel in Genesis. And We've been doing this through keeping our eyes on this promised seed, the promised seed that was promised in Genesis 3, and that is being kept through the covenant of God, through individuals and a people, and that ultimately is fulfilled in Christ. And so that's what we've been looking at and looking for as we go through this exposition. And so, got a good sort of summary of what we're going to talk about this morning in our, in our narrative, and it's in the first five verses. So let's turn with Genesis 28, 1 to 5, and let's stand in honor of God's Word. Genesis 28, beginning in verse 1. Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Arise and go to Padan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take as your wife from there one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may become a company of peoples. May he give the blessings of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God, may, that God gave to Abraham. Thus Isaac sent Jacob away, and he went to Aram, to Laban, the son of Bethuel, the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, Jacob, and Esau's mother. Pray with me. Uh, Lord, as we come to this amazing story, we have called to mind where we've already been. and We see how you have sovereignly chosen for yourself people and individuals within that people and you're carrying out your purposes and your plans and your work, that you are involved in these people's lives individually, Lord, these are deep truths of your work and so now, Lord, we just want to rejoice this morning. That there is a very real effect in Jacob's life from your presence and your power and your involvement in his life. And Lord, that is our prayer for ourselves. That we would see your presence. And that we would worship you for who you are. Thank you, Lord. For a story that shows that though we be, be the most wretched, the most deceitful, the most conniving person on the face of this earth, yet through your power of revealing yourself, you can transform. Our prayer is for that, for those in the room and those whom we love that know not you, that you would do your work in their life. And Lord, that we would gain the comfort of your people, that you will never leave us nor forsake us. This in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. So the last week, and I urge you if you haven't um, 
being here the last couple of weeks, you may want to go online and just sort of catch yourself up, sort of connect the dots. But last week we were looking at this drama of deception that's going on, not only in Jacob's life, but Isaac and Rebekah and Esau and this stealing of the birthright and of the promises and all this deception. No one was outside of its effect, both actively deceiving and also being deceived. Remember we said last week, they gained nothing but lost much. Because what ended up happening is simply proven the truth that we learned last week. That God's plans and God's purposes cannot be hindered. But they lost. What Jacob's losing now. As we enter into this story, don't forget. Jacob is now a fugitive. He's running for his life because Esau, his brother, wants to kill him. So he's leaving his home. He's leaving his land, and he's leaving his mother that he loves so much. And he will never see his mother again. She will die before he returns. It's cost him much. And yet, verses 1 to 5 that we just got through reading, we see though Isaac was deceived, and though he was deceptive, trying to go around the plans of God by blessing Esau, even though God had said Jacob's the one. Though now we see in verses 1 to 5, he gets it. He learned the lesson of last week that says God's plans can't be hindered. He is the promised son because he has said so. And so now he blesses him. He also instructs him. Did you notice that? The same way he was instructed as don't marry. Don't marry the Canaanite women. Go marry your own people. People inside God's covenant. So he marries inside his own people. He's given that charge. And and if you're paying attention, we're going to read it. Verses 6 to 9. Esau's paying attention. Esau's seeing, hmm, Jacob's leaving. He might be the promised one, but I see where he's going. He's checking out. He's heard I'm going to kill him. He's leaving. And so he makes this attempt. He hears, he hears Isaac say to Jacob, don't, don't marry these Canaanite women. You need to marry in your own kin. And so he goes and marries one of his Ishmael's kin. You see what he's trying to do. Jacob's leaving. He's trying now. And it's too late, really, because remember, he's already married two Hittite women. He's just sort of a subgroup of the Canaanites. He's already married them. But here in his effort to please his father, get back into the good graces, so to speak, he marries Ishmael's kin. And so we get this tension. The tension is there. It is that Esau is in the land of promise, and Jacob's leaving the land of So you get this tension. Well, wait a minute. What's going to happen? So we want to see, I want you to see two things this morning. I sort of prayed in that direction. God can transform the most deceptive worldly individual and turn them into a true worshiper. I hope we're going to see that this morning. Jacob's transformation was due to God's gracious intrusion into his course of life. He invades him this morning. I want you to see that. But more importantly, remind ourselves every week, how would the original audience, the reading on of the original audience, Israel, read this narrative? What would gain? What's the message the narrator wants for them? So that's our second. The goal of the narrator this morning is for God's people, Israel, to gain comfort Because the Lord's promises guarantees them that He will never leave them or forsake them. He will be with them no matter where they go. And we know if we remember some of our history, what that meant. What that looked like in their life. Just imagine with me this story coming back as you're standing. We're going to read about that in a little bit. Standing at the brink of going into the land of promise or coming out of Egypt, or once they were in the land of promise, all the enemies that would come against them, this would be a comfort for them. That was the narrator's point. And so, let's begin the story. The story begins in verse 10. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night, because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And so the important thing to see right off the bat here is he is beginning the journey. 
He is not, and sometimes the narrator does this. Remember, sometimes the narrator can jump over a journey and you're there all of a sudden. He's not doing that. He's saying, Jacob's just beginning his journey. His destination is Haran. It's where his kin is. But he's just getting started. This is going to take about a month if he stays hard at it. And so he begins this. He stops to rest. This is where the Lord God reveals himself to Jacob. It hasn't happened before. And he comes in a dream. Verse 12. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set upon the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven, and behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And so I want you to see this morning, this revelation that comes in a dream. There's three things. There's a setting. happens in a place, and it looks a particular way. There are participants. There's people involved in this. And then there is a central focus. This is important because this sets the stage for the unpacking of the promises that will come later. So first, let's look at the setting. The first part of verse 12. It is a ladder. The ladder is between heaven and earth. And so what it says is the ladder is setting on earth and it extends up into the heavens. If you remember the Tower of Babel, the Tower of Babel many things was in Mesopotamia, they would configure these ziggurats. These look like the pyramids. And they would go up into the, towards the heavens. And their thought was not that they would go up to God, but that God could, would come back to them. And they would normally put those in a place where they worshipped. And some people think this may have been what he saw in his dream. A, 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 a ziggurat that extend up into heaven. We don't know for sure. But the dream, this is important, the dream to happen in a place. Look with me, the author wants us to make sure we don't miss this. Look at verse 11. And he came to a certain place. And then a little bit later, taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and laid down in that place. You see that? He's, the place is important. So the, the author is saying, pay attention here. This place is significant. The setting of this where the ladder sits down, is important. It's in here six times in this narrative. The place became Bethel. And so it should be, when I say Bethel, it should, it should be cluing in. I've heard that before. Where is that from? We'll come back to that in a minute. But this also happened at night. These were nocturnal theophanies. These, these were thing, experiences, these experiences with God. God appears to him and it happens at night happens to him two times. These were life-changing events, but all of them happens at night. These appearances of God. First is now, he's fleeing from Canaan, and the next one's going to be when he's anxiously anticipating returning back to the land and wondering if Esau is still mad, if Esau still wants to kill him. So both of them, both his going and his returning, there was anxiety there, there was anticipation. What's going to happen? And God appears to him to give him hope. And we'll see. How does he give him hope? But imagine with me, just practically, Jacob has just pulled off the greatest caper of his career, so to speak. Stolen the birthright. Stolen the blessing. Deceived everyone. And now he finds himself in the presence of God. Not exactly a good feeling after what he's just experienced. So the setting, though, is extremely significant. Remember I said Bethel? You see, what has happened is though Jacob has just gotten tired and he just happens to stop at this place. This is the exact place where his grandfather Abraham had met God and worshipped and set up an altar in chapter 12, verse 8. The same place. You see... This place happened to be where he stopped to sleep, but this place was chosen by God. It's going to be a significant place for God's people. Let's quote, This place became a shrine, a stone became an altar, a fugitive became a pilgrim. This is the place where God revealed and Jacob worshipped. So what does this setting really mean? John, look, turn with me to John 1. John chapter 1. 
A lot I could say about John 1. I just want you to see the gospel connection here. Jesus is choosing his disciples and he is choosing Nathanael. John 1.47 says, Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, you were under the fig tree. I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. Listen to what he says. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on who? The Son of Man. And so the, the latter is the connection between heaven and earth. 1 Timothy 2, 5 says, There is one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. We'll look at that passage again a little bit later in the service. I just want you to see this latter represents something. This place is significant. There's also participants. Who are they? They're angels. Look at verse, the end of verse 12. Back in, back in uh, Genesis 28. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. In other words, the angels weren't sitting, sitting up on harps playing. They're working. They're serving. They have jobs to do. And so the, we see them acting. And this is not the first time. That we have been introduced to angels in Genesis. Remember, we saw him first in chapter 3, verse 24, when, he, when, when God puts cherubims to guard the tree of life. Remember when we looked at that to say that was protection for Adam and Eve, who has already fell in sin to keep them from eating of the tree of life. And then we, they show up again in Abraham's life in chapter 18 and chapter 19. Remember, Abraham ate a meal with the angels. And they did what? They delivered a message. Said, you're going to have a baby. Oh yeah, we're going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. So they're saying, we're coming to exercise justice. What happened in that story? They did just as they promised. They both exercised justice. And they also rescued Lot and his family. We see mercy. And so, what are we seeing? These angels are guarding, they're communicating, they're rescuing. Did Jacob understand this? It's not in your notes. Genesis 48, 16. Jacob is blessing Joseph's sons. And in verse 16 of Genesis 48, he says, The angel who has redeemed me from all evil bless the boys. So what is he saying? The angels have protected me. Just what they said they was going to do, that's what they've done. And so he gets it. The message here with the participants is, you are protected. You are protected. But they're not the focus. And we've got to be careful in our modern fascination with secondary things. The angels are not the focus God is. God is the central focus of this dream. And so look at verse 13. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said... I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. Now the fact that the Lord stood above it could mean two things. One, it could mean that it is God who is at the top of this ladder. It also could mean that he's actually, he comes down the ladder and he's over the top of sleeping Jacob. Either one. He's the focus. Remember verse 3. Isaac calls him God Almighty. El Shaddai. God Almighty bless you. Thank you fruitful. Jacob also would say this in Genesis 48. Speaking again to Joseph. He says God Almighty appeared to me. But here he identifies himself specifically is I am the Lord. I am the Lord God. In other words, I am Yahweh. And any time we as God's new covenant people, here I am, we should always think of Christ. This is why the most religious people in the world in His day wanted to kill Him. Because they knew what that meant. 
He's saying, I am the covenant God. Genesis 15 and Genesis 20. Yahweh is my name. The, the name I give to be identified by my covenant people. So now what he has, what he's been given here, is now he is placed in the line of patriarchs by God himself. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Think about this. Up to this point, Jacob nor Esau has ever acknowledged Yahweh as their God. This should remind us of another conversion. You remember Saul on the road to Damascus. Saul would become Paul. Was Saul looking for God? No. He wasn't. Matter of fact, he thought he had God. He wasn't looking for God. He wasn't trying to fill a little hole in his heart. He hated Christians. He wasn't looking for God, but God came looking for him. And God invaded his life. You remember that? This happens the same thing. Jacob's not looking for God. Jacob's running for his life. Running for his life. And here we see God reveals himself to him. He says, I am your protector. I am your God. Second thing we see now is God has identified himself. God now is going to unpack his promises. Look at verse 13. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. In other words, there's two things he's promising here to start with. Land and seed. First is the land. In other words, remember, he's not in Haran yet. He's still in the Canaanite land. In the, in the town of Luz, he would name Bethel. He says, the, the ground you're laying on, it's your land. I'm going to give it to you. In other words, think about this as him. He's, he's running for his life from the very land that God has promised him. And God says, I know you're fleeing. But this land belongs to you. So he promises them land. He also promises them seed. Your offspring is going to be like the dust of the earth. Not only you are going to have this land, your offspring is going to have this land. This is good news for the bachelor. Because if he says, well, okay, i got offspring coming, that means there has to be a, a wife. <laughs> and so he got, my, my dad's told me to go and choose, I'm going to have a wife, I'm going to have an offspring. Very comforting to a man who had set out from his, everything he had ever known and comfortable. Running for his life, I get, I'm going to give you land, I'm going to give you seed. In other words, the Abrahamic promises that I promised your grandfather, they now belong to you. So he promises them land. He promises them offspring. But he also here is guaranteeing him protection. How? Look at verse 15. He promises him protection by promising his presence. Behold, I am with you. This promise would carry and does carry people through many times of danger. It would in God's people. Psalms 46. The psalmist writes. Verse 7. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. What is he remembering? God that protected Jacob. That protected Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He's protecting us. He's with us because we're God's covenant people. And God has made us a promise. I will be with you. And he says, verse 15, I will keep you. Behold, I am with you and will keep you where? Wherever you go. So I know you're going into a strange land away from everyone you've ever known. That was his consequence and he is embracing it. He is enduring his consequence. God's not removing it. But here's what he's promising. I will be with you. I'm going to keep you. So look with me. Joshua 24. Joshua 24. This is God's protection on Israel. The original audience is reading this now. Verse 17. Joshua 24. 
For it is the Lord our God who has brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery, who did those great signs in our sight and, listen, preserved us in all the way that we went and among all the peoples through whom we passed. So he's not, God's not promising Jacob nor his people nor you that he's going to take you around the problem. He's promising I'm going to be with you and I'm going to preserve you through it. Through it. Think about all this. This this was just big for me personally this week. Think about all of this deceiving. Think about what we we looked at last week. All of this grasping for God's promises. This is on me. What his mama was telling him. This is on us. We got to make this thing happen. And laying on the ground asleep, God gives it to him. Gives it to him. Here. So listen to me. You don't fight for your calling. And you don't have to fight to keep it. It is God who calls. It is God who keeps. This is good news. God calls us. God keeps us. In other words. Quit trying to do something big for God. God has put your calling in front of you. Embrace it. Speaking to us specifically today as fathers. Embrace it. He says, I will be with you. I will keep you. I will preserve you. And listen, I will bring you back. The end of verse 15. I will bring you back to this land. This is promise. I'm going to be with you wherever you go. I'm going to preserve you while you're there. And I'm going to bring you back to this land. And in Genesis 35 and verse 6, exactly what he does. He brings him back to that place and and Jacob worships. God always fulfills his promises. And he's telling Jacob and he's telling God's people and he's telling us this morning that yes, God's plan is, is going to go is going to be accomplished unhindered by the, by the works of man. But man, God's people, are not accomplishing them on their own. God is with us. He doesn't leave us. He doesn't wind the clock and let it go. He's involved in His people's lives. This is good news. Because life is hard. And so, having experienced this dream in verse 16, He wakes up. And what does he do when he wakes up? Jacob responds in worship to Yahweh. So when he wakes up, he wakes up with the reality of something that was never true before. The Lord's presence. He wakes up with the reality of God's presence in his life and has an effect on him. Verse 16 and 17 says, Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place and I didn't know it. We need to be reminded of something this morning. We need to be reminded of what Scripture says is people's response when they encounter God Almighty. We see no in Scripture, no account in Scripture where God's people treat God's presence with flippancy. Matter of fact, Isaiah 6, when he said, I saw the Lord. What did he say? I'm undone. Woe is me. So when Jacob wakes up in the, with the reality of the presence of God, Jacob fears God. And listen, it's what the text says. It's a mixture of both terror and adoration. I mean, God's presence. Same thing in Exodus 19, another important place, Mount Sinai. Exodus 19, 16 says, On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain in the very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. All worshipful acts must begin with a reverential fear at the presence of God. And in verse 17, this is exactly what we see. It says, and he was afraid and said, how awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. 
So now the setting comes back up. He's saying, this place, this place is holy. He couldn't just sit there and do anything. This didn't cause him to be passive or apathetic. It caused him to worship. And it called him to make some commitments. We see Jacob setting up a shrine here. A, a meeting place of worship. Listen, this was for, in his mind, a meeting place for God. This is the place he would have access for God. And so, before we go any further in the story, let's ask ourselves, fathers, ask yourself this morning, men, women, ask yourself this morning, what had to happen for you to have access to God? And for fathers, this ought to mean something. He had to slaughter his son for you to have access to God. This only causes one thing. This doesn't cause nothing. This causes a response. And we see the first response is devotion. Verse 18. So early in the morning, Jacob took, up, took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on top of it. And so what he's doing here is he's taking this stone and... and Many people believe this, is, well, this wasn't necessarily a stone that he put his head on. This could have been a big stone that he put and he slept in front of it. And so what he's doing, he's taking this stone and he's setting it upright in a, in a very unnatural position. My daughter corrected me here, so I'm probably not saying this name right, but England has those rocks called Stonehenge. Hedge, that's better. And uh, So the point is this, when you see them, you realize this is not natural. This just didn't happen. Somebody still talking about what happens, what he does here. So he sets this rock up and Jacob makes an offering. This is an offering. Worship involves giving. And so he, he makes an offering. He pulls oil on the stone as a gift from God. A gift to God. This would serve the same purpose as an offering. And many people believe this is actually a sign of immaturity on his part. We remember Abraham, when he came to the same place, he built an altar. And when Jacob comes back, some 20 years from now, he's going to build an altar. But he's undone by the presence of God, and in his immaturity, he, gives him, he makes an offering, he makes a sign of devotion. What is he doing? This is the point. It's not to make fun of him because he's doing something immature. It's to realize he is doing, he is devoting himself to God. He is saying, this place is holy. I'm going to consecrate it. A biblical system later would use oil to consecrate things as holy to him, holy to God. Not only does he devote the place, makes an offering, he commemorates it. He changes the name of it. Verse 19, he called the name of the place Bethel. But the name of the city was Luz at first. And so he takes this Canaanite town and he changes the name. So we're going to call this place Bethel. What does that mean? This is the house of God. It's a place. When I come back, when, when God keeps his promises and he returns me to the land, this is where we're going to worship. Because this is where we have access to God. Commemorates it. And then he dedicates himself. Verse 20. Then Jacob made a vow saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go, and will give me bread to eat and a clothing to wear, so that I will come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. It's important. Jacob hadn't said this before. Never professed God to be his God. And so we ask the question here when we read this carefully. Is Jacob... Bargaining with God here. Well, you, you wouldn't believe how much is written about this. There's two schools of thought. One is yes and one is no. <laughs> is, is it possible that this is expressing some, what we saw early, some still some immaturity? It's possible. But also it is very possible that this is simply a standard construction for vows in that day. Remember, vows, not a big deal for us, real big deal for them, for Jewish people. Vows had a if, then. This is exactly what he sets up. And remember, the if 
It's based on the unconditional promises that he's already received. Those are based, the if is based on what God has already guaranteed to do. And so what he's doing is he's binding himself in dedication to what God has already promised. That's the point. He binds himself to it. He says, God's promised to be with me, to keep me, to return me in peace to this land. In other words, God has promised to be my God. And so, he says, this is going to be the place that I worship my God. I will dedicate myself. And not only this, look at this. He goes from a grabber, remember his name, the heel grabber? He goes from a grabber to a giver. Verse 22b, and all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. Now, I'm not going to climb up on a bully pulpit and talk about tithing here. This is not the point. Simply saying, this simply is what maturity in the faith looks like. I was talking to one of my brothers at the first service about the dumb decisions that we've made over, you know, campers and boats and cars and trucks, and we've all made them. <laughs> and, uh, will not we spend money on what we are passionate about? is true. And here we see this Jacob, this deceiver, this grabber turned into a giver. This is the reality that the gospel transforms us. We do not shop around churches like we're going to the grocery store. It's not our purpose. We're trying to find a place where we can join in the mission of God, where He is worshipped. Where God's truth is being spoken and we join into the mission of God for the glory of God because we have one purpose. To advance His kingdom. This is maturity. We give ourselves. We give our life. This is what we see in Jacob's life. So we see first, we've seen it, hadn't we? This deceiver was suddenly and unexpectedly transformed by the presence of God in his life. And this God promises, I will protect you. I will be with you. I will never leave you. And the point is to see, this had a visible effect. We're going to see it. This has a visible effect on Jacob's life. It didn't turn him into a perfect person. <laughs> so we saw this very clearly. There is no perfect person. But we do see the, that God's people are progressively obedient. This morning we had the privilege of watching Miss Regina get baptized. and Such an amazing time, no matter how many times you see it. Because you realize there is this confession and then profession. There is a time in our life when we agree that I am under the wrath of God for the sin that I have done against His holy name. I cannot save myself. I cannot make amends for myself. I can't do this on my own. I need Christ. I need His perfect sacrifice. I put my faith in Him. He's my Lord. He has the right to, to govern my life. He's my Savior. He paid a debt I couldn't pay. He gives me His righteousness, adopts me into His family. I make that. I agree with Him on that. And then I stand up in the waters of baptism and make a visible profession. The order to this. Jesus is my Lord and He's my Savior. And then every day of our life from that point, we live as a public profession of faith in Christ. The visible. Second, the audience. The Lord's promises. Wherever you go, God's people. Wherever you go, Israel. Wherever you go, Parkwood. God says, I'm going with you. Why? Because you're my people. Because I am a father, and I'll never leave my children. And you see, Israel was anything but obedient. True? Especially in the beginning. You remember the whole promised land scenario. 40 years in the wilderness. And though God disciplined them. Though they experienced the consequences of their disobedience. Yet God blessed them. Protected them. And they came into the land that God had promised. Just as he said. The life of Jacob would encourage God's people. And encourages us to trust our God. To fulfill his promises. The first of which this morning is I will be with you 
And I will not leave you. So what? This is the simple reality this morning. The Lord always keeps his promises. So here's what I want to do this morning. I just want us to go through Scripture, beginning with Exodus 3. I just want you to see there's a theme here. I just want you to see the promises of God to his people. Exodus 3, verse 12. This is Moses' burning bush experience. You remember it? Go free my people. What did Moses say? Who, me? You talking to me? Exodus 3, 12. He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be a sign for you that I have sent you. When you brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. What's the promise? I will be with you. See it? Deuteronomy 31. Deuteronomy 31. Joshua, in this context, is standing on a nearly impossible life transformation in him. (laughs) This giant of a man, Moses, is about to die. Here we have sea of people. He has to lead them. Going into a promised land. And you're going to lead them. What does Moses say to him? Be Verse 30, uh, Deuteronomy 31, verse 6. Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them, for it is your Lord, your God, who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. What's the promise? Lead the people. Because God goes with you. He won't leave you. He won't forsake you. Joshua 1, 5. He needed some more encouragement. And so God speaks to Joshua directly in Joshua 1, 5. And what does he say? He says, Joshua, no man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. So was it for David in Psalms 23, a very familiar psalm. Is that God would promise David that he was going to be king. Remember? Did he become king instantly? No. No. He had great pain before he became king. But here's what David is saying. There is a promise that's with me in the cave. It's with me when I'm running for my life, being hunted down like a dog. So he says in Psalms 23, The Lord is my shepherd. And listen, if there was any man that understood what it meant to be a shepherd, it was David. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the path of righteousness. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. What does God not promise you? That He's going to take you around the valley of the shadow of death. He doesn't. And people who tell you that are lying to you. He promises you that He will be with you. And so, David says, I'm not going to fear Why? Because you're with me. That's the promise. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. In other words, even you protect me, and even when you correct me, it's love. It's love. God's saying, you're my people. See, I told you I wasn't going to leave you. You're living in sin right now. I'm going to correct you. Why? Because He loves you. This is God. It's good news. You prepare a table before me and my enemies, even when my enemies are around me. You're blessing me. You anoint my head with oil. What is his hope? When he's in the cave, I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Why is that so comforting to David? Because that's where God is. And to his prophet, to his people in Isaiah 43 verse 2, says simply this, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. Micah read Isaiah 7 verse 14 that promises one day there is going to be a Savior, a Messiah that will come, and His name is going to be Emmanuel. In other words, we are going to experience on earth God with us. This was their hope in Matthew 1.23 says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. He come, just as he promised. The mediator promised. He came just as he said. 
Listen to this. It's amazing. Not only is He God with us. Colossians 2, 9 and 10 says, For in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in Him. Not only does He promise to be with us, He promises to be in us. And so it was that the disciples, after spending three years of their life with Jesus, Jesus says, I'm leaving. Where are you going? Don't leave. He says, if I leave, I'm going to send a comforter. And I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm not leaving you. Sending you a comfort. He will be with you. And so he did in Pentecost. God sent the promised spirit. And it had a visible effect on God's people. So much so that people thought they were drunk or something's wrong. All of a sudden they're speaking these different languages and people are hearing the gospel in their own tongue. And in Acts 2.33 says, Before being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. He has poured out on you this yourselves are seeing and hearing. You see, the promise that God gives His people, that He's going to be with us, and that He will give us the promised Holy Spirit, God the Spirit in us, is not simply that God promises us to bring His divine spatula and scrape you off of the asphalt of life. No. God promises you that He will be with you through the trials of your life. And that through them, He will keep you. And so, Christ, as He leaves, gives His people the primary way we glorify Him. And the primary way we advance His kingdom. And what does He say in Matthew 28? Make Christ followers until I come. What does He promise you? Matthew 28, 20. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. We went out, uh, some guys went out this week doing some evangelism. Here's the promise of God. That doesn't return void. It's just what God has given us to do. So what's our promise as Christians this morning? What's, what's your great promise of heaven? I heard someone ask the question, I don't remember who it was, that said, would you still want to go to heaven if God wasn't there? Revelation 21, 1-4. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and, there was, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be His people. And God Himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain. For the former things have passed away. And listen, verse 4 is good news. No more pain, no more tears, no more death. They're gone. It's not the best news about heaven. It's not the best promise. The best promise is in verse 3. The dwelling place of God is with man. We'll be with Him. This is what makes heaven heaven. We'll be with God. We can get to know Him as we are known is that what we're trusting in this morning? Are you trusting in the promises and presence of God? How do you know? How do you know you're trusting in the promises and presence of God? Here's what God's people would bear witness this morning out of His Word. There is a visible effect on your whole life. When you live a matter of fact, presence and power of God is so promised. It is that which keeps you from sinning. I love Him so much. I don't want to, I don't want to break this relationship. I, it's, it's the most important thing in my life. This affects everything. So what, do, what God's Word is saying to God's people is the fact that God is with me, that God will keep me, and that God will bring me to home where He's promised me has such an effect in your life that you can never really be the same. And that nothing else will satisfy you.
Turn with me to Psalms 121. I think it's actually up on the screen if you just want to read it. Psalms 121, we'll close with this, is written, most people believe, to God's people who are on a journey. They're journeying to Jerusalem to worship. And so this, this picture is that as they get closer and closer to Jerusalem, where they will worship God, Jerusalem gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And their eyes are fixed on the house of God. Psalms 121. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep you, your goings out and your comings in, from this time forth and forever. So for God's people, this journey to Jerusalem to worship become a parable of life. We live all of our life trusting, not in just what God gives us, but we trust in Him. Let's pray. So Lord, as we come to this close of a time that Your people have gathered together to worship You and to offer You with everything that we are, Lord, thank You that our worth does not come from anything inside of us. Our worth comes from whose we are. So Lord, we thank You for the blessings of the cross. Because what it purchased for us is that now we get to know God. More and more, sweeter and sweeter, despite what comes in our life. We have this blessed hope that one day our dwelling place will be with you. So, Lord, may we be faithful about your mission until you come. Lord, now we stand, receive our worship from your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Stand and respond as God leads you.